Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober, right here on Green Earth Radio. I'm back. Welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on Green Earth Radio. Today, my guest is Peter Ballerstedt of Berenbrug, USA, plus a special holiday-themed version of our desserts. But first, let's go to our appetizers and find out what happened this week in the world of real food. Russia announced that it will be banning U.S. imports of beef and pork unless the meat producers can certify that their products are free of the growth-promoting drug, ractopamine. When other countries don't want the foods we have here domestically, this should serve as a wake-up call that we need to greatly raise our standards on what we're feeding to our livestock. Also, Organic Pastures Raw Dairy owner Mark McAfee has filed a lawsuit against the FDA for not responding to a request sent four years ago to change the law on allowing raw milk to be carried across state lines. Mark McAfee has been an important force in the raw milk movement, and I commend him for standing up to the FDA in hope of getting them to change their policy. And that brings us to our main course, which today is forage production. If you're a regular listener to this program, you know how much I'm for grass-fed meats. I talk all the time about how they're better for you, better for the animals, and better for the planet. But my focus is often on the meat itself. The thing is, in order to get the best meat, poultry, or dairy, the animals need to be foraging off of the best grass. The word grass comes first in grass-fed meat because farmers have to first focus on growing the perfect grass. Different animals require different forage mixtures and grasses. In addition to the perfect grass, there are also legumes and other crops that are great for animals foraging. Here to talk with me about animal foraging is Peter Ballerstedt, product manager for Baron Brug USA, a worldwide leader in growing grass. Peter, thank you so much for doing my program. It's great to have you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here. Absolutely. And it's it's amazing what you're about and what your business is about. I had first seen you at the Wise Traditions Conference at Weston Price. That was about a month ago. And it was just such an amazing presentation because there were a lot of speakers there certainly talking about grass-fed meats. But most of them, they seemed to talk really just about the meat part of it and I love that you had a whole presentation devoted just to the grass. Well, there is that saying that all flesh is grass. And ultimately, in our global ecosystem, the primary organisms that capture solar energy are, are green plants, those that can photosynthesize capture the radiant solar energy, convert it into a chemical form of energy. And then there are a number of animals that can utilize that plant material to produce animal protein and animal fat. And, of course, the most important of those are the ruminants, the cows, sheep, goats, and other animals that human beings across the face of the earth have utilized for the purpose of producing meat, milk, fiber, um, clothing uh, from hides, as well as work, uh, draft animals. Absolutely. So now certainly you know a lot about this. 
How first did you get involved in learning all about forage and grasses? Well, my training is in agriculture. I've received a number of degrees in general agronomy, in crop and soil science, and ultimately my final degrees were in forage production utilization and a ruminant nutrition minor. Um, that still doesn't answer the question of how I got interested in agriculture. I was born and raised outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in a part of the country, Lower Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And as I was growing up, we could watch farmland being converted into residential track units. And it didn't take me very long to realize I much preferred living in the country and having finally been able to do that, then got interested in issues or topics of, of concern to those regions and became interested in agriculture. Again, kind of through a back door, I signed up at a two-year school for construction technology. Those classes were all full. I was encouraged to take some background kind of foundation courses as well as an elective. The elective was field crop production. And the principles of field crop production by Martin Letter and Stamp was the, the textbook for that class. And somewhere in that book, it even included production of hemp, and I was hooked from that point on. Interesting. So was that almost sort of the opposite? First, you're involved with the construction, I mean, the heavy kind of industrialization, and then got more interested in the agriculture. It was a, it was a complete transition for me. I, I was thinking of the construction technology, and all of a sudden this world of agriculture was opened up to me. And one of the most meaningful exercises of that class was doing a farm plan, actually going out, walking on the farm with soil maps and crop maps and talking to the farmer about cropping history and getting an idea of what kinds of goals they had and then trying to put together uh, a report that would make recommendations for varieties and for fertility and some practices. And, and I shudder to think what kind of suggestions I might have offered someone who'd been farming for 40 years. Here I am all of a couple months into it. But it was, again, something that was so interesting to me. Uh, it opened up this new world and, again, allowed me to imagine living in a more rural environment as opposed to the ones that I had grown up in. And I come from pretty similar background. I mean, I consider myself a city slicker. And, I mean, I am still living in the city, but very much one of my me- it's an interesting thing of kind of my message now is, I mean, I kind of see myself as kind of, bridging a gap because I'm this city person that's doing this you know, radio production, stuff like that. But it's all about certainly opening people up to what the the rural community and the farming towns, what they provide for us. It's been really a thing of knowing how important they were because I just feel like kind of for like 30 years of my life kind of cut off from that community. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and part of that's the challenge, too, because there's all kinds of stories that are being marketed from all different perspectives, and marketing be, being what it is, it's not always the case that we have an accurate perception of what's going on. 
And so part of my mission, I think, as I've perceived it, is to communicate with agriculture about a set of the marketplace they may not be aware of, as well as to communicate to them some information that I don't think that they're aware of. And at the same time, kind of talk the other way to some of these communities that I've come in touch with now, because I routinely hear things very confidently asserted that I know aren't the case. And so to the degree that I can kind of help each group learn from each other, I, I hope I can accomplish that. A, a bit of my personal story is that in 2007 at Christmas time, I set up the camera on the tripod to take the family photo kind of thing. And you hit the timer, and you run back in and you get in the picture. And then when you get a chance to look at that picture, in my case, I didn't like what I saw. And that pretty well got me to the point where I was willing to listen to some of the information that my wife, Nancy, had been learning and practicing herself for, oh, probably five years or so by that time. And what I came to realize was I was an obese pre-diabetic however many years ago. That's five, so I'd be 51 years old. And some friends had been diagnosed with prediabetes. I started to learn about that condition, really, you know, would like to avoid diabetes if it's at all possible. And as we then began to adopt a, a different diet, moving away from a carbohydrate-based and certainly cereal-based diet to one that was more heavily reliant on animal protein, animal fat, animal products in general. I started talking to local farmers, and these are farmers who themselves are progressive. They're more grass-based in their approach, their niche marketing, they're down at the farmer's market, etc. But they were almost all promoting their products on how lean they were. And as I reviewed the literature, I became more and more aware of that is the assumption that less fat, less saturated fat, less cholesterol would be these desirable traits in animal products because they say those substances have all been implicated in heart disease. And we should all be pretty well aware by now that those are false. There is no relationship between saturated fat and heart disease. There is no relationship, meaningful relationship, between the level of cholesterol in your diet and the cholesterol in your blood. It's not a matter of total fat in the diet that seems to be related, rather maybe some other macronutrients. So all that got me interested in talking to those farmers. They got interested in the fact that I was at one time the forage specialist at Oregon State University, so could you come tell us about our pastures? And then I started having opportunities to talk to agriculture about the dietary message. If you put yourself in the position of a cattleman, you exist in a country where your tax money is going to 
a government that's actively promoting the message that what you're producing is harmful to human health. It's an interesting world to live in, as well as just on a personal basis. I mean, these people have families, children and grandchildren. They themselves may be facing a similar sort of health situation that I did. And in some cases, some of these people have heard the information that I'm trying to present. They go to the sources that I recommend. They make their own decision that they'll give it a try. And then they see these dramatic improvement in their health. Then you don't have to say anything else. They're convinced. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the, I think, most moving things that you said at the conference was about the lean meat, saying that if grass-fed beef is low in fat, you're not doing it right. Because that's so often the criticism that I hear of people when they react to my aggressive beef, they're like, oh, but I want my meat to be fat. So explain that of how to do grass-fed beef right where the meat is fat. Well, so much of tenderness in meat is there's a strong genetic component in that. In other words, it's a heritable trait, just like coat color would be. One of the benefits of putting animals into a grain-feeding finishing operation is that you can cover up a lot of things by feeding grain. But if you're not going to do that, if you're going to have these animals consistently gaining on a fairly decent level, and at the end, you're going to have the kind of carcass with the traits that are desired in the market, you really have to pay close attention to the genetics um, that you're using to produce those animals. You also have to have the quality of forage and insufficient quantity to allow those animals to eat enough to be on that kind of high, consistent rate of gain. So there's there's a, a lot that can go wrong. It's, it's not simple by any means. But if someone is promoting their lean meat and saying that that's what grass-fed meat is, then I could show them some pictures of some grass-fed T-bone steaks that are certainly not lean. They come from a breed of animal that was selected to finish well on grass. Typically, we're talking about animals that are probably more out of the English breeds than out of the, the Indicus kind of breeds. And, and again, we, we have the animals we have because they've been bred for the management systems that they fit into. And so if someone were looking at going to a grass-based dairy, for example, they probably would not be well served by going to a confinement Holstein Frisian operation, taking those animals and putting them on pasture. Those animals weren't bred and selected to, to, to do well under a pasture situation. And it's kind of funny. I was doing some online research for an entirely different article, different subject, and I stumbled upon this paper that was talking about the fact that 
in New Zealand, they have Frisian cattle. And in this country, we have Frisian cattle as well. In New Zealand, of course, they've been pasture-based for years for their dairies. And they wanted to make sure that they weren't just ignoring an opportunity. Could we, in fact, they were asking, feed some grain to our dairy cattle and benefit from that? Um, still on pasture, but supplementing. Well, they, they learned that as you fed a certain amount of grain, those animals, there would be this substitution effect that animals would graze for less time for every given unit of grain that you fed them. So then you have to kind of do that balancing act and see if that works out. But what they realized is over time, that substitution effect got less. And they came to understand that that substitution effect was, in fact, a heritable trait that they could select for or against. And they also began to realize that the New Zealand Frisian cattle were not as efficient at partitioning the energy coming from grain to milk production as the North American Frisian cattle were. So the result was that the New Zealand Frisian cattle would take more of that energy and put it into body condition. And that's not necessarily something that you want happening in your dairy cattle. Whereas in the North American Frisian cattle, they would take more of that concentrate energy from coming from grain and put it into milk production. And when they dug even deeper, what they realized was that the North American Frisian cattle are more insulin resistant than the New Zealand Frisian cattle. Again, a genetic trait. So here we have this interaction of genetics with management and then with the final outcome. And we've known in animal agriculture for some time that the degree of fattening is a heritable trait. So that there's a pretty classic picture out of animal uh, husbandry textbooks where they've got um, a cutaway section of two um, slaughter pigs and you're looking down through the, the hams and you're looking at the back of the standing animal, as it were. And one animal has just obviously more subcutaneous fat and more marbling fat, intramuscular fat, than the other, although they were fed the exact same ration. And it's it's entirely due to the genetics. They've been selecting for these animals. And so now we can take it back around and say, agriculture's been sold the same story as the American public. That is, lean meat is the healthy choice. That's what you want. And so the, the swine industry selected for leaner and leaner and leaner meat until they finally got to the point where they had pork with no flavor. And now they're trying to bring that pendulum back a little bit, reintroduce some marbling and reintroduce some fat into, into the animals that they produce. So as I get the opportunity to talk to animal agriculture or carry the message that the goal here should not be, certainly for your own, understand the marketplace. You're, you're going to sell into a marketplace. And I understand that. But for yourself, for you and your family and your friends, um, 
don't don't fall for the message that what you're producing needs to be lean. Right. So would you say that probably one of the top priorities of Berenbrug is providing grass that will make for the fattest meat? Well, the the the, the, the priority for Berenbrug USA is to develop forage varieties and turf varieties, but I'm a forage person. Um, develop new varieties, produce the seed for those, and wholesale market it. Clearly, to be a successful forage variety, you have to have uh, a plant that is widely adapted, one that will stand up to the kind of management that it's going to be subjected to. So there are some plants that are better fitted for pasture than others, and there are some that are better suited for uh, harvest kind of management. You want to make sure you get the right kind of plant into those kind of management systems. And then we're selecting for digestibility, which would equate to energy content for animals. Um, persistence for those plants, not annuals. So we want in, in a, in a perennial plant, we want, uh, an we want something that will persist for a significant period of time so that they're not replanting every year. At the same time, we have annuals that have an advantage. You would be replanting those every year. So in a sense, we're looking for what plants will produce best and then how much fattening they produce on the animal. That's going to be dependent on the animal husbandry. That's a different set of genetics. So we are in the grass genetics business mm-hmm. or clover or brassicas or other other plants. Right. Would you also say that the grasses vary on the type of animal and even type of food being produced by the animal? Like are there different grasses that are best for the cattle that are raised for meat versus the ones that are raised for dairy? I would say that is true, although it's probably going to be more influenced by the management put on top of it. Um, but certainly if you're a dairy producer, you're going to need a higher digestibility in your forage than a cow-calf operator would need. And... Uh, if you were taking those weaned calves from a cow-calf operator and then running them in a backgrounding or stockering operation where you're trying to put weight on an animal and prepare it for finishing, you would, you would need some higher quality feed than the cow-calf operator would it would be lovely if you could have feed of as high a quality as the dairyman, but that's not necessarily required. So you're somewhere in between. And then once you got to that finishing operation, you probably need something very equivalent to dairy kind of quality. And that would shift from species to species in grass. And it would also shift throughout the year. So in the springtime, uh, early feed, uh, grass pasture tends to be of very high quality. But then as you get later in the spring or early summer, 
you're going to get some flowering in those grasses, reproductive growth, and that's going to bring down the feed value. And then even in the summer, even if you had leafy material in the summer, it would be of less quality than the leafy material in the spring would be just because of heat stress and, and the, how the plant responds to heat stress. And then when you came into the fall, the feed quality would pick back up again. So one of the challenges of forage-based systems is that you have this fluctuation in total production throughout the year, as well as the quality of what's being produced throughout the year. And then you overlay the animal's requirements, which themselves change, on top of that feed production calendar. And, and now you start to figure out what is it you're trying to do versus your neighbor? What is it that you're hoping to achieve? What are you willing to do? How does that fit with your family goals, for example? All those things, and it just becomes uh, a more and more complex system to try to, to put together. Mm -hmm. In addition to the grass that they forage on, how about in the winter seasons when there isn't grass growing as much, are there certain things that are good for the animals to supplement on while that's happening? Well, one thing certainly um, you could utilize would be hay or, or grass silage that you made earlier in the year. We call that conserving uh, forage. So as I said just a little while ago, in the spring when plants go reproductive, you get a whole lot of feed being produced. And in almost every pasture kind of system, there's no way that the animals are going to be able to keep up with that amount of feed that's being produced. And you don't want let, you don't want to let those surpluses accumulate. It's, it's not desirable for plant growth, for pasture quality, for yield. And so what frequently will happen is the farmer will come in and close off some of those pastures out of the rotation and let them grow up, become a silage or hay crop, harvest that, and then once those paddocks have regrown, then open them back up to grazing again. So you would have that stored feed that you could feed in the wintertime or when the pastures are just too wet for animals to be on. Because you don't want to have animals on those kinds of fields tearing up the sod and making footprints and opening things up for weed invasion or for erosion. Uh, other times it just may be too cold. There's no forage growing, no plant growth. But a technique that's used in those situations is to grow the feed earlier in the fall but not graze it until later in the season when growth has stopped. And now you essentially have standing hay, if you will, that you could graze off in a rationed uh, way and extend the grazing season without feeding hay. There are other tricks that, or techniques that you could use. You could grow things like turnips or rape or kale that these are brassicas they're members of the the broccoli cabbage family 
and they've been used for many centuries as a feed crop for livestock. You wouldn't harvest those. You would grow them and then, again, ration graze those off to animals at times when pastures aren't growing. So there's a couple, there's lots of ways you can bridge that feed gap in the wintertime uh, in, in those climates where you're going to have significant periods with no growth or inclement weather. I think that's a pretty amazing system where we can grow stuff, like grow some hay in like the spring season and then have it saved. Because certainly for me, even before the health aspects, what got me interested in the whole grass-based movement was the environmental implications, hearing about all the environmental damage that feedlots cause and how actually cutting grass is good for the environment. It's all because we need to replenish our grasslands. So I think that's amazing that even the stuff that we provide them in the off-season when there's as much grass growing that we don't need to just have this like come from somewhere else to provide that, but that we can make this ourselves. In, indeed, and to the extent that we can do that at a, at a lower feed cost, then that gets to lowered cost of production, which gets to increased profitability. And that's the true sustainability portion um, for agriculture. Without profit, there's no sustainability. Right. So you know, we the the environmental aspects are again part of that narrative that that people are told. And in the presentation that I made um, down in Santa Clara, one of the things I just tried to point out is you have a number of people who for are interested in the subject of anthropogenic or disastrous. Uh, anthropogenic global climate change, the idea that man's activities are not just influencing climate change, but doing so in a way that will be harmful. And one of the parts of that narrative is that animals are harmful because they emit carbon. And I went through the exercise of showing that if you have animals grazing grass, you in fact have a carbon negative situation, that, that grasslands fix carbon. And, and that yes, animals will emit carbon, but the feed that they ate has to be the source of that carbon because they're not making carbon themselves. And the carbon that was in the feed that they ate came from the atmosphere. It didn't come from the soil. So what you're doing is you're cycling carbon in that sense. And as the plant takes carbon out of the atmosphere to, to, to build its own body, if you will, it builds roots as well as leaves. And so... As it's making leaf material, there's a significant amount that's being put down into the soil in the way of roots. So, and, and, and cows grazing don't graze all that's there. You have to leave some. And so the figures were somewhere around for every pound fixed, uh, for every pound emitted, 
about three pounds are fixed. And, and so that's a significant reduction in carbon from this kind of a livestock production system. And when I've offered this to some people who are quite knowledgeable in the realm of climate sciences, what they assure me is that many times people who talk about this, they only look at the emissions. They, they don't look at where it comes from. And so then they only talk about the one, you know, the, the one side of the equation. And you start becoming aware of things like that, and you start questioning a lot of other uh, kind of, you know, as I say, narratives about the impact of animals on the environment. The, the, the simple fact is that grasslands don't stay grasslands unless they're grazed or burned. That if, if you were to take uh, grassland and completely restrict grazing or burning from it, it would progress ecologically to shrubs and more woody uh, plants and ultimately uh, would, would no longer be grassland. All right, well, certainly a lot to talk about in world of uh, growing perfect grass. We will be back after a word from our sponsors. To Your Health Sprouted Flower Company offers organic sprouted grains and flowers for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. Visit our website at organicsproutedflour.net or call toll-free 877-401-6837. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Perry Pure Eco Rag Industry is an eco-conscious clothing line. Designed and manufactured in Los Angeles, Perry is dedicated to sustainability by using certified organic, eco-friendly, and reclaimed fabrics and using low-impact dyes in its solar-powered facility. The Perry collections are inspired by the changing colors and moods of nature. A portion of all sales go to organizations that support the health of our oceans and seas. Shop today at perrythelabel.com, and for listeners of The Appropriate Omnivore, you'll receive 45% off all items when you use the code OMNI45. And we're back. I am talking to Peter Ballerstead of Barenbrug USA, and we're talking about how to grow the perfect grass, which will then lead to getting the best meat products. So we've been talking certainly about the sustainability of pasture-based meats and how this is actually replenishing our grasslands and good for our environment. Um, I want to get now into talking about what do you think are some of the challenges in terms of getting everyone to move to grass-based meats? A number of challenges. I think one that I'll be putting before some colleagues early next month when I speak to their conference is once we get to the understanding that the human diet ought to be based on animal products as opposed to cereal products, 
the question then becomes, how are we going to produce enough to feed the population? You can run numbers, and I've done this, and show that our current kind of technology and current land use it, it will be a significant challenge. Now, I think on the other side of that, you have to understand that in the United States, we have a very, 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 very long way to go before we're really even coming close to pushing our forage resources in this country. For a number of reasons, historically, we haven't been faced with the same situation that countries like New Zealand have been faced with where a relatively small amount of land, um, a, a mark, uh, an industry that was primarily focused, in their case, on export. In our case, it's been domestic. Uh, in their case, grains have been very high. Fertilizers have cost more, and petrochemical inputs have cost more there than here. And so for a number of reasons, they've been focused on optimizing the cost of producing animal products from grass in that country. In this country, we've gone down the track of maximizing the production per animal or per acre. And we really have to divest ourselves of that mindset when we're going to go down the path of becoming grass farmers. Also, that very designation of being a grass farmer as opposed to being a cattleman or a dairyman is a big difference between other countries in the United States. In, in this country, the predominant attitude is that I'm a dairyman or, or I'm a, I'm a, you know, Holstein dairyman or I'm a cattleman and then I'm maybe even a breed specific beef cattleman. And the idea about being a grass farmer is that, in fact, what your crop is, is is the grass itself. What can you grow here economically, sustainably? And then how are you going to convert that into some marketable product? Uh, and then everything sort of flows from there. Additional limitations to grass-based meat production um, you're going to have issues of marketing. You're going to have issues of, of uh, processing. All of those things are going to come into play. Part of the concern that I have is when I listen to people who are involved in the grass-fed industry, they routinely make claims for their product that when I go to the literature – I don't believe you can substantiate those claims. And, well, to a certain extent, that's America, right? That's, you know, that's marketing. But my concern is that if people do that, you open yourself up to being um, falsified by another part of the market. And I guess what I would say is you don't need to do that. And in fact, the sooner we stop that, the better. Um, Grass-fed product is a different product from a grain-fed product. 
and we can market to the you know the consuming public just based on that we don't need to be making health claims we don't need to be making nutritional claims that are on very shaky grounds as far as the published literature so i'd like to see us kind of mature if you will as a mar- as an industry and just market what it is without you know reaching overreaching um one of the problems that we're going to have ahead of us is that the consumer the consuming public one believes that a healthy diet is one that contains no more than five ounces of red meat a day <laughs> so so that's that's got to be dealt with and then a significant part of the population doesn't know how to cook anymore and and how do you market to you know a, a, a public that is doesn't understand you know perhaps how to cook um, different products those are all going to be challenges I don't think they're insurmountable and in fact I think that they represent opportunities for people that want to um, develop these industries well they certainly involve a lot of opportunities for people I mean you know I think we're talking right now you know people are listening right now to two people that they provide opportunities with as far as people um, need to learn about cooking. I think anyone that wants to know about how to learn how to cook grass-fed beef, because you do cook it differently than conventional meat, I think they should pick up the books Tender Grass-Fed Meat and Tender Grass-Fed Barbecues written by the wonderful Stanley Fishman, who's been a guest on this program a number of times because, I mean, he went through the same thing as everyone else. The first time he cooked grass-fed meat, he ruined it, and mm-hmm. but then developed this perfection, and I mean... He has just a, two books filled with all kinds of recipes you can do with pastured meats. So that's would be my solution for anyone who says, I don't know how to cook grass-fed meat. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. There are the, the wonderful thing today is that information is available. Um, it's available online um, and, and in print, as you mentioned, certainly would recommend. Um, the, there's, a, there's a joke about, um, they used to say that if you um, gave a million monkeys each a typewriter, they'd reproduce Shakespeare. And now, thanks to the Internet, we know that's not true. <laughs> um, we, we do have to have some filters in place. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one, of the, one of the challenges that we're going to face um, going forward is and, and I've seen this with some really really good producers. It is a lot easier to produce a consistent product in lamb, grass fed, completely grass fed, um, consistent tenderness and flavor, um, as compared to in beef. Um, and one of the challenges for some niche marketers is, especially those who are providing to a restaurant, is if you don't always know when something goes wrong until you, uh, you know, test the product, so to speak. And if you're selling to um, restaurants, usually all the meat that you're going to provide to a restaurant is going to come from one carcass. 
And if something went wrong, it went uniformly wrong throughout the carcass. So now you've loaded up a restaurant with a product that their customers are likely to not be pleased with. And so you, you can only do that once to a restaurant. Um, so th that will be a significant challenge as people learn going forward. Um, another challenge simply is that a lot of our traditional sources of information, that is land-grant universities, um, the suppliers into agriculture, um, the, the traditional service providers to agriculture aren't really ones that are themselves well-educated on um, this subject. So we're going to have this opportunity to help people learn, um, to help people progress. But the flip side of that is there's, there's a big lack in, in terms of um, that know-how and, and information. And frankly, there's a lot of people who are trying to service it, but it's, it's sort of like the joke that I tried to open the talk with. Grazing management and golf are similar in that it's easier to talk a good game than to actually play it. <laughs> so. Certainly. And I know I think a lot of people want with lamb. I know a lot of people assume that all lamb is grass fed and now, if, am I correct that that's not true that necessarily all lamb is grass-fed? Yeah, that's true, absolutely. Um, a, a lot of the lamb that's produced in the United States is going to um, spend some time in a grain-feeding operation. Um, and it's also going to come from uh, maybe bigger animals, maybe a little older so you, you need to know your supplier and you need to know what kinds of um, practices they have in place. John Newmeister at Cattail Creek Lamb is where we've gotten ours. We're very lucky here in the Willamette Valley we, of Western Oregon. We have some wonderful producers all around us. Uh, we have a, a heritage pork producer just a few miles west and we have John Neumeister just a few miles south, and we have lots of quality beef producers all around us. So in that way, we're, we're quite fortunate. Um, also, coming out of New Zealand, uh, you're dealing with a product that's a quality product, but again, maybe a little different age. Um, so just not all lamb is created equal, I guess, is the, the message there. And then the other thing to just remind people of, and, and I had the experience of sharing this with people at Wise Traditions and varying kinds of response. But if you look at all of the uh, food that goes into feeding uh, the, the beef cattle in the United States, so all of the feed required to feed the beef cattle, you've got something like 83% of that being forage. So even today with, you know, the standard American beef production systems, 83% of the feed that the beef cattle are consuming is, is forage. 
hay pasture silage. Only 17% is concentrate grain. Now, you've got some animals that are on feed, and they're going to get more grain, obviously, but even there, almost 30% of what they're eating is forage still. So even today, the livestock industry in the United States is a forage-based industry. Because if you look at all livestock and all poultry, it's more than 60% of the feed is forage. Now, you know, poultry gets none. Swine, on average, you know, gets less than 20%. You're dealing with different kinds of digestive systems, so they, you know, different ability to utilize forage material. But so many people I've spoken to kind of have this image that, you know, beef cattle spend their entire life in a feedlot. And the reality is that only those animals that are going into that final finishing phase on grain are going to go to a feedlot, and then that's like maybe three months. And with the pressure due to high grain prices, et cetera, et cetera, the pressure is to make that shorter and shorter. Now, you know, things can be done better, obviously, but... In, in order to improve something, you have to have an accurate view of what's going on. And so that's one reason why I try to share this with people. I've had people argue with me and say, well, that's not true. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know where to take the conversation from that point. I'm just relating statistics. Oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't know where to take that either. And that is a thing that a lot of people misunderstand. I think listeners of this show or people that you would see at a Wise Traditions conference probably know that – it's not the case that they're livestock that live their whole life in feedlots, but to the general public, yes, it is. A lot of people don't understand that livestock is one which all of them start out on the pastures, even if it's for a short period. They all do spend some time on the forage. Well, yeah, I guess I I just qualify. First of all, I'd narrow it down because livestock includes swine. It includes poultry. In those cases, obviously not. Um, in some, you know, th there's a small growing um, industry where they are running uh, swine on poultry, uh, sorry, swine on pasture, and obviously some um, poultry as well, but it's, it's a very, very small part of the industry. In the case of sheep or goats or beef animals absolutely uh, would agree. In the case of dairy cattle, it's going to depend a lot on where you are in that industry across the United States. Um, you know, you may have um, animals being reared outside in hutches, um, but that's not exactly pasture to my way of thinking. They're certainly going to be taken off the, the mother early because the, the, the whole purpose there is, is milk production. Whereas with a, a, a beef um, cow-calf operation, they're going to be suckling off mother for several months before they're weaned. 
in the case of, of a dairy animal, it would be, you know, a day or so. Um, so a little difference, but, but for the most part, um, if, if you look at, you know, the, as I said, if you look at sheep and goats, they're figuring that it's like 91% of the, you know, 90% of the feed, the, the nation's sheep and, 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 uh, goats consume as forage. Again, that's a very small percentage of, of the total feed, um, because there's such small numbers in the United States for the, for the, for all beef cattle other than uh, those on feed, the figure is over 95%. And for the dairy animals, it's over 60%. So a significant amount of the feed that's going even into today's commercial um, livestock industry is going to be hay, pasture, or silage. Right. So I think a probably more accurate way maybe is actually ruminants. They all spend certainly a little bit of time in the pastures. Um, yeah, again, I, I just offer a, a, a caveat when it comes to the dairy uh, calves. Mm-hmm. Right, um, that one's a little different. Yeah, I mean, it's in some, it's getting different now because they can actually sex the semen that they use in um, artificial uh, insemination management. So the number of bull calves is declining. Um, but in sort of previously bull calves might be sold fairly quickly, um, in, in some operations rather than raise them up. Um, in, in the case of the, the heifer calves, um, again, early on, they're going to be raised in some kind of a system that allows more intensive hands-on feeding and management and then ultimately yeah they'll they'll get put out into uh, a pasture operation for some period of time um up through breeding um until shortly before they freshen so uh, overall i'd say yeah i agree with you um but there are a couple cases where that might not be the case so i wouldn't want to let it sit there as a blanket right certainly can't you know say everything is definite and certainly that's I think our goal is to make it all uh, make all of it though at one point become pasture based so we have to go to our desserts in a little bit but um, just before we go can you kind of tell us a little more about um, some off advantages that uh, that Berenbrug uh, offers in, as far as uh, being at the head of the pasture based movement. Well, Barenbrook USA has a long history. We're part of a family-owned company that goes back to 1904 in Holland. So we're still a privately-owned seed company. And from its inception, we've been interested in, in helping farmers make money from grass. And in fact, Mr. Barenbrook, back in the early 19, before 1910, I think, wrote a book called Making Money from Grass. So we have that kind of in our DNA, and, and uh, we we look for those forage plants that have a unique feature. It could be um, 
a tall fescue that has a visibly and tactly sense. You, you can touch it and know that this is actually a softer leaf plant than the older uh, coarse type of tall fescue. Or it may be something even completely different like a meadow fescue, which is a relation to tall fescue. Or improved ryegrasses or clovers. We, we want to get the best forage genetics. We don't deal in corn. We don't deal in alfalfa. But in terms of grasses and legumes and forbs that can allow animal uh, grass farmers in the United States to really take advantage of the possibilities here. We're, we're dealing with phenomenal potential and it's largely unrealized. So Barenbrug being this kind of company uniquely positioned in turf as well as forage, as well as consumer products, as well as export, makes us a fairly unique company. We're nationwide and, in fact, we're worldwide. So we have access to germplasm from around the world. Uh, we have a large number of atom of, of plant breeders to produce these kinds of, of varieties, species that would significantly advance the opportunities for grant for the forage based livestock industry in the United States. And we have a number of individuals who've been at this for long enough that they've acquired a great deal of information. And we share that information because uh, an educated consumer is a, is a loyal, is a better consumer. Um, they'll recognize the value and then you learn from them because they're the ones that are out there actually doing it. And so to a certain extent, we're engaged in a collaborative effort with our customers. Well, it's certainly, it's an amazing thing of what you're doing and telling people and what we have Baron Brett doing. So before we go, tell people where on the Internet they can find uh, the website to learn more information about what Baron Brug does. You can find Baron Brug USA at www.barusa.com. Or if you just Google Baron Brug, B-A-R-E-N-B-R-U-G. You can get to both the uh, Royal Barenbrug site in Holland as well as Barenbrug USA. All right. Well, Peter, thank you so much for coming on our program. That's all for this week. My guest next week is Gary Collins of New American Nutrition. To find out about my desserts as well as my guest and more information about my news stories, you can visit my website at appropriateomnivore.com. Thank you. Thank you. 